just ahead on Bob's World on this Monday. It's town meeting day in Vermont tomorrow, and that means a number of big ballot items in cities and towns from the Connecticut River to Lake Champlain. Also, a hotly contested Burlington mayoral race. The Dairy Farmers of Canada wants its members to find something other than palm oil or a derivative of palm oil for their cows. It's making their butter harder than it should be. Seven Nobel Prize winners are sticking up for a Harvard professor under federal investigation and calling out the university for failing to do the same. In the weather outside, well, <laughs> the wind's swirling, the snow flurries are flying. Up north, anyway, after a warm past few days in the 40s, the great northeast is chilling out in a big way. In northeast Vermont, we could hit zero by daybreak tomorrow. I'm Bob Welch, and Bob's World is next. The Government of Canada and public health experts are taking action to protect Canadians from COVID-19. Protect yourself and others, especially those with medical conditions and older adults. Wash your hands often. Avoid touching your face. Cough or sneeze into your arm and disinfect surfaces. You should also avoid crowded places. Avoid all non-essential travel outside of Canada. And if you're sick, stay home. To learn more, visit canada.ca slash coronavirus. A message from the Government of Canada. Adopt US Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting A Teenager Learning the Lingo Jelly Jelly adjective Jelly is a shorter, better way to say jealous As in, Chloe, I am like so jelly of your unicorn phone case You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same Visit AdoptUSKids.org Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services AdoptUSKids and the Ad Council This is Bob's World, Monday, March 1st, 2021. Good afternoon, I'm Bob Welch, and here's what's happening. In Vermont, the first Tuesday in March could only mean one thing, it's town meeting day. While COVID will change some of the routines and traditions of the day, one constant remains, democracy will happen. Either by Australian ballot, like Burlington, or people gathering in parking lots instead of inside meeting houses. Given every town and city is different, run things differently, that means things could be put off to another date when more of us have gotten our COVID shots. In Vermont's largest city, Burlington has a number of big ballot items and a hotly contested mayor's race that together could change the political landscape. There are nearly 26,000 active registered voters in Burlington, and more than 8,000 ballots have already been cast by mail. Corinna Driscoll is a former Burlington mayoral candidate. She gave Mayor Mira Weinberger his biggest challenge in 2018. Senator Bernie Sanders' stepdaughter, she is. She uh, fell about 1,600 votes short that year. The independent who got support from the Progressive Party then believes people are ready for change in the Queen City. She's backing independent Ali Dang in the race. WCAX reports Progressive Party leader Josh Ronsky says Burlington voters appreciate the message of the hard left and are ready to elect Max Tracy. He believes today's progressives are similar to that of former Mayor Bernie Sanders and are pushing for some of the same ideas like livable wages and just cause evictions. 
Kurt Wright is the former Republican City Council president and one-time mayoral hopeful. He believes that the pandemic could help the incumbent Mira Weinberger, who has held weekly press conferences since COVID took over headlines, keeping him in the public eye. Wright is, by the way, supporting the Democrat Mira Weinberger for mayor, saying he believes more people want to see a change in city council. The council leans progressive, and Wright believes many don't agree with their decision to cut the city's police force last summer, something the mayor has also fought against. Let's go to Canada now, and the term Buttergate, that has entered the lexicon up there. It's about consumers observing that for one reason or another, butter has become harder of late. CTV Montreal Channel 12 reports Dairy Farmers of Canada is encouraging its member farmers to find alternatives to palm supplements and cattle feed as the working group looks into consumer concerns that butter has become harder. Experts say the new directive could make it hard for Canada's dairy farmers to keep up with consumer demand. The recommendation comes after media reports linked the purported change in consistency to the common practice of bolstering cows' diets with palm byproducts, which Canadian authorities have approved as a safe ingredient in livestock feeds. Animal science experts say there's no feed supplement that's as efficient or economical as palmic acid and warn that ruling it out could come at a cost to dairy producers and lead to an increase in butter imports. While some dairy farmers are looking into alternative feed supplements, others say they're sticking with palmitic acid because it's best for their cattle and their bottom lines. Daniel Lefebvre of Lactonet, which advises dairy farmers of Canada, says while Buttergate is based on unfounded claims, his words, a turn in public perception poses a greater threat to the dairy industry than asking farmers to eliminate a safe and effective method to maximize production. Down to Boston now, where seven Nobel Prize winners and dozens of other scientists are publicly questioning the federal government's prosecution of Harvard professor Charles Lieber and criticizing the university for failing to defend him. A letter signed by 40 academics from across the country, including several at Harvard, which is in Cambridge, across the river, calls the government's case against Lieber, quote, unjust. It also suggests that U.S. scientists are becoming increasingly vocal in opposing the government's crackdown on academics with financial and research ties to China. The Boston Globe reported in January dozens of scientists signed off on a letter criticizing the arrest of MIT professor Gang Chen, who was indicted on wire fraud and tax violations in failing to disclose his financial ties to China. Lieber is a world-renowned Harvard nanoscientist, and he was arrested a year ago and is alleged to have lied to the federal authorities about his involvement in a Chinese talent recruitment program and for cheating on his taxes. The letter in support of Lieber reads in part, Despite his standing in the scientific community, or perhaps because of it, he has become the target of a tragically misguided government campaign that is discouraging U.S. scientists from collaborating with peers in other countries, particularly China. In so doing, it is threatening not only the United States' position as a world leader in academic research, but science itself. Lieber was the most high-profile scientist arrested by federal prosecutors in the crackdown on academic espionage, These cases were a priority for Massachusetts federal prosecutors under the leadership of former U.S. Attorney Andrew E. Lelling, who stepped down at the end of February. 
In the past few years, the U.S. government has fined universities and arrested academics for failing to properly disclose their financial ties to China. Federal prosecutors have alleged that these collaborations are an attempt by China to siphon cutting-edge technology and intellectual property from the U.S. Lieber, by the way, has pleaded not guilty to the charges. U.S. scholars have said that the Justice Department's aggressive pursuit of these cases fails to understand that research is shared across national boundaries and breakthroughs are only possible if they work together. But during the Trump administration, scientists have been reluctant to publicly speak out, fearing that their government research funding would be at risk and their own international partnerships could be questions. Stuart Schreiber is a Harvard chemistry and chemical biology professor. He started the public letter in support of Lieber and said that academics are more hopeful about the Biden administration's approach to science. Now, to the weather. If if you've been out there or are listening to this in your car with a Bluetooth tether to your smartphone, you know the weather changed on a dime at some point around this afternoon. Well, depending on who you are, it might not have hit you yet. Some of you have yet to be poked on the chest by old man Winter's cane. Checking the 430 readings, our friends in Manhattan have 46 still. Up the Harlem line and Brewster or 684 by car. It's 43 there in Putnam County, New York, as is Worcester, Massachusetts. Chatham on Cape Cod and Boston are the warm spots at 45 for now. The change is coming. Hello, Ogdensburg, on the St. Lawrence Valley, 25, up to Montreal, 28, Bangor, and our St. Johnsbury studio are 37. Well, inside the studio, it's a warm 70, but outside the studio, it's 37. I know I'm splitting hairs, but how low can we go tonight? Zero, says the National Weather Service. You might notice some snow if you're out there, but you'll probably notice the howling winds more. 15 to 25 miles an hour out of the west-northwest. Could gust over 40 in northeast Vermont, northern New Hampshire, western Maine, and the eastern townships of Quebec. Tomorrow, a few clouds early, otherwise mostly sunny. High 16. Really windy tomorrow, like tonight, really, into the same magnitude. You'd swear it was January when you step out there. Tomorrow night, down to 10, which is warmer than tonight. It's the little things, remember. Wednesday, cloudy. A few flurries or snow showers possible. High 34 with overnight lows in the teens. Mostly sunny skies for Thursday. High 23 and a west-northwest wind at 10 to 15 miles an hour. AccuWeather last night said that the real feel tonight would be 22 below zero. That's kind of chilly. This is Bob's World. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, We'll probably stay together. Probably? (laughs) It's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? 
Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. For eight long days, all Kim and Richard Krause had was the $20 in Kim's purse. According to an unemployment claim mix-up, a freeze was put on their joint account at the Key Bank branch in Waterville, Maine. After more than a week of days of stress and confusion, the freeze was finally lifted back last Thursday afternoon. They still wonder what happened. Maine's Waterville Morning Sentinel reports. The complications for the Krauses come after broader comp complaints about the unemployment claim system in the Pine Tree State in recent years, which has also seen an influx of fraudulent claims during the pandemic. A morning sentinel inquiry into the Krauses case has revealed a shortcoming of Maine's unemployment claim review system. There simply weren't enough department staff to manually review the surge in claims that came back in the spring as businesses closed down or laid off workers. The result was that a handwritten note by Krause's employer could not be read by the Maine Department of Labor's claim system, which ultimately resulted on the bank account freeze some eight months later. A department official, though, said uh, that oversight has since been addressed with a new review process in place. The Morning Sentinel continues in their story to say that there have been issues with Maine's unemployment system that launched in December 2017. Complaints about the system dominated the headlines in early 2018, while early in the pandemic, serious problems arose with the system as the unemployment rate skyrocketed. Kim Krause said she wonders how many other Mainers have been affected by similar claims problems, which resulted in her primary account suddenly becoming frozen with no prior notice. Krauss tells the Morning Sentinel, how can they just freeze someone's whole life without any prior notification? It's been a nightmare, an absolute nightmare, her words. Kim Krauss is employed by the Hakutamaki Manufacturing Facility in Waterville. She was laid off during the early days of the coronavirus pandemic last year, but that was from March 20 to April 14. Hutt Mackey did not respond to a form sent by the Maine Department of Labor about Kim's unemployment claim until June, after she had already returned to work there. The state form was sent soon after Krauss filed for unemployment. Because she was already back at work, Hutt Mackey checked off the box saying she was working full-time, not currently unemployed. In the comments section of the form, Hutt Mackey did write that Kim had been temporarily laid off. The Maine Department of Labor official wrote in response to a morning sentinel inquiry, quote, Unfortunately, the system can't read text. Due to a high claim volume, we did not have staff manually reviewing the comment section at that point in time. By late April of last year, about 108,000 Mainers had filed for jobless benefits in the previous six weeks, which was more than one of every seven workers in the state. 
throughout the debate over stimulus, one question has produced repeated deadlock in Washington. Should the states get no strings attached federal aid? Republicans have mostly said no, casting it as a bailout for spendthrift blue states. Democrats have argued the opposite, saying that states face dire fiscal consequences without aid. State aid could well be a stumbling block for President Biden's $1.9 trillion federal stimulus bill, which contains $350 billion in relief for state and local governments. It narrowly passed the House this past weekend. It is yet to pass the Senate, where it faces a much tougher ride. A New York Times report today has new data, which shows that a year after the pandemic wrought economic devastation across the country, forcing states to revise their revenue forecasts and prepare for the worst, for many, the worst didn't come. One big reason, a $600 a week federal supplement that allowed people to keep spending and states to keep collecting sales tax revenue even when they were jobless, along with the usual state unemployment benefits. By some measures, the states ended up collecting nearly as much revenue in 2020 as they did the year before. A J.P. Morgan survey called 2020 virtually flat with 2019 based on the 47 states that report their tax revenues every month, or all except Alaska, Oregon, and Wyoming. A researcher at the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center, a nonpartisan think tank, found that total state revenues from April through December were down just 1.8% from the same period the year before. Moody's Analytics used a different method and found that 31 states now had enough cash to fully absorb the economic stress of the pandemic recession on their own. Someone get Andrew Yang a subway map. Yours truly has one tacked on the wall in our field headquarters here in St. Johnsbury, Vermont, so we can glance at it and go, where is that subway stop? What line is that community? Where does that subway line go? The wannabe mayor today reports the New York Daily News, tweeted a photo of himself on the subway's A-line, a typical move for politicians angling to score points with city strap hangers. But his description of his commute garnered widespread disapproval online when he treated his train was Bronx-bound. There's one problem with that statement. And the experts would know. The A-Line, the longest subway route in the city, does not stop in the Bronx, but instead terminates at 207th Street, way up in Upper Manhattan, and on the other end, Far Rockaway, Queens. Yang also tweeted affection for the express track that shuttles A-Line riders along a three-mile stretch between 59th and 59th Columbus Circle and 125th Street in a matter of minutes. Gotta love the express tracks. We all love the express trains. The New York subway. I even enjoy the express. I've ridden on the 6 express a few times. As well as the 5. I believe it was the 5 I rode on the express. Anyway, a campaign spokesman would not say whether Yang actually knew the A train does not travel to the Bronx before he tweeted... This morning, you know, they're going to get you for anything like that when you're running for office. Doesn't matter who you are. Daily News at one point a little while ago 
um, caught the current mayor toasting a fresh bagel. I believe they caught Mayor Bloomberg eating pizza with a fork. Fair game for everybody. They're not just—they're not picking on Yang. They go up to every. Yang pointed to a tweet from his communications director that showed the candidate eating beef patties with Councilwoman Vanessa Gibson. She represents the Bronx. Noting the commute required a transfer. Now, the snafu is far from the first transportation blunder Yank has made on social media since launching his campaign in January. A month ago, he tagged Tesla mogul Elon Musk on Twitter, saying the billionaire, quote, would have a very large customer partner in New York City for electric buses and trucks. That tweet appeared to disregard city procurement rules that prohibit the issuing of contracts without a bidding process. Yang lives in Hell's Kitchen, a neighborhood that relies heavily on the A-train for its transit needs. But for much of the coronavirus pandemic, Yang did not join his neighbors in using the subway line to navigate the city. He spent months with his family last year at his second home in New Paltz. It's up the river a little bit. A city of 7,100, little mass transit, and absolutely no subway service. This is Bob's World. When I was 350 pounds, I was pretty much a shut-in. I call it my lost decade. What I got out of TOPS was learning what I needed to know and the accountability and the support from people. People that could relate to the struggle, people that could understand where I'm coming from. I have lost 125 pounds with the TOPS organization. Visit a meeting free. Learn more at TOPS.org. That's T-O-P-S dot O-R-G. It's not that I lost the weight. It's that I found my life. To protect her home and family in a disaster, Karen was willing to wade through water, mud, and insurance paperwork. Yeah, I can do this. You go, Karen. By simply understanding and updating what her insurance covers and doesn't cover now, she'll be better prepared no matter when disaster strikes. Learn other simple ways to protect your home and family before a natural disaster at ready.gov. That's ready.gov. A message from FEMA and the Ad Council. Familiar music means that it's time for birthdays in this day in history. Welcome back to Bob's World on this Monday, March the 1st. I'm Bob Welch. Day number 60 of 2021. There are 305 days left in the year. Singer-actor Harry Belafonte, Dale, is 94. From Manfred Mann, uh, Mike, uh, Mike Dabo is 77. Former Senator John Bro, Democrat of Louisiana, 77 as well. Also 77, Roger Daltrey is 77. Actor Dirk Bennett, Dirk Benedict, make that. He was part of the cast of the A-Team, 76. Actor-director Ron Howard is 67. Pop singer Kesha, 34. Justin Bieber is 27. 
On this date in 1781, the Continental Congress declared the Articles of Confederation to be enforced following ratification by Maryland. 1893, inventor Nikola Tesla first publicly demonstrated radio during a meeting of the National Electric Light Association in St. Louis by transmitting electromagnetic energy without wires. It would be later before we could prove that we could transmit such signals across oceans. That was Marconi in 1912. Uh, the signal was received at Signal Hill in Newfoundland being sent across from England. That, that stuff happened later. 1954, the United States detonated a dry-fuel hydrogen bomb codenamed Castle Bravo at Bikini Atoll in the Marshall Islands. Also, four Puerto Rican nationalists opened fire from the spectators' gallery of the United States House of Representatives wounding five members of Congress. 1957, The Cat in the Hat by Dr. Seuss was released to bookstores by Random House. In 1961, President John F. Kennedy signed an executive order establishing the Peace Corps. In 1966, the Soviet space probe Venera 3 impacted the surface of Venus, becoming the first spacecraft to reach another planet. However, Venera was unable to transmit any data. Its communication system failed. It's also still there. 1968, Johnny Cash married June Carter at the First Methodist Church in Franklin, Kentucky. On this date in 1971, a bomb went off inside a men's room of the U.S. Capitol. The radical group Weather Underground claimed responsibility for that pre-dawn blast. And in 1974, seven people, including former Nixon White House aides H.R. Haldeman and John Ehrlichman, former Attorney General John Mitchell, and former Assistant Attorney General Robert Mardian were indicted on charges of conspiring to obstruct justice in connection with the Watergate break-in. These four dependents were convicted in January 1975, although Mardian's conviction was later reversed. And on this date in 2010, after the Olympics ended, Jay Leno returned as host of The Tonight Show. Remember he left? to start a 10 p.m. show, and during that time, Conan O'Brien was moved from late night to The Tonight Show. And then, of course, once NBC realized that uh, the sort of late-night talk show format doesn't really fly in the 10 o'clock hour when other shows have scripted dramas, they uh, put Jay Leno back on The Tonight Show, and, of course, he later retired for good, giving it to Jimmy Fallon. But Conan O'Brien was the odd man out in the whole thing, and he's now got a good thing going on. I guess it's on TBS now. So that's how that whole thing went down. Something for last, a French bulldog that went missing from his family's home in California's Bay Area was found four weeks later after being purchased by a man 600 miles away. In Mexico, Debbie Campbell said Brody, her emotional support dog, went missing from her San Lorenzo home February 3rd, and despite searches of the area and photos posted by her family to social media, weeks passed without any news of her lost pet. Campbell said she was shocked to receive a phone call last week from Benjamin Gonzalez, 
A man who said he bought a dog matching Brody's description from a man on the street in downtown Tijuana, Mexico. 600 miles away from San Francisco. Gonzalez said family members who live in the Bay Area told him the dog he purchased looked like photos of a lost dog they had seen on social media. Gonzalez sent Campbell a photo of Brody's identifying tattoo, confirming the canine's identity. The 37-year-old Gonzalez said he had lived in the Bay Area since he was a baby but was deported from the U.S. two years ago and has lived alone in Tijuana ever since. Gonzalez tells KGO-TV, that's San Francisco, he's from the Bay, I'm from the Bay, it was just weird, I guess he just was meant to go back. The Campbells paid Gonzalez back for the money he spent buying Brody off the street, but he declined any other reward. The Campbells said they don't know for sure how Brody ended up in Mexico, but they suspect he was intentionally stolen to be resold due to the breed's popularity and high price tag. That's Bob's World on this Monday, first day of March. Coming in like a lion with that temperature crash that has either come or will come, depending upon where you live. Wherever you are, I hope you are warm. We have listeners stretching from Ontario to Texas and Florida and all sorts of places in between. Remember, our talkback number is area code 802-467-0212. You can drop your voicemail message about anything you hear at any hour, day or night. I'm Bob Welch. Thanks for listening.